Okay, I think we're going to kick off now. Welcome everybody to the Institute for Government. And we're delighted to have Stian Westlake and Jonathan Haskell with us today. Um, Stian is a policy advisor to the Minister of State for Universities, Science, Research and Innovation. And he's also a senior fellow of NESTA, the UK's National Foundation for Innovation. And Jonathan Haskell is a professor of economics at Imperial College Business School, Imperial College London, and he's the director of the <coughs> doctoral programme at the school. And we're here today to talk about Stian and Jonathan's new book, Capitalism Without Capital, which looks at what the authors describe as the quiet revolution in the economy that can help explain everything from the productivity crisis to rising inequality. For those of you that don't already have a copy, you'll be able to purchase one after this event. Um, so I want to start with the basics, because I'm assuming that most people have not read the book yet in the room. In the book, Steve and Jonathan, you argue that one of the major changes in the new economy, the quiet revolution taking place, is the rise of investment in what you describe as intangible assets. What are intangible assets? And how is an economy based on intangible assets different to one based on tangible assets? Um, thank you, Emma, and thank you all for, for, for joining us here today. Um, really, in the book, we argue three things. First of all, as you said, we argue that there's been this big sea change, a really big long-term trend in the nature of investment that goes on in rich countries like the UK. And that is that companies have moved on the whole from investing in things you can touch and feel, like machines and buildings and vehicles, to things that you can't touch and feel, like research and development, or brands, or organisational structures, or designs. We then go on to say that this change matters because these investments have fundamentally different economic characteristics, which I'm going to mention a bit in a second. And in the remainder of the book, we make the point that these new characteristics help explain all sorts of economic and public policy puzzles that people have been wondering about, ranging from aspects of secular stagnation to aspects of the rise of populism and dissatisfaction with business finance and many other things that we'll talk about today. But Jonathan, do you want to say a bit more about the, the, the intangibles themselves? Yeah, thanks, Dean. And again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, all for coming and for organising this. Uh, so just to, let me just say something about some of these unusual kind of economic properties of intangible assets, and they're up on the screen for you. I mean, as Stian's been saying, what, what we think is that the character of the economy has changed enormously. The economy is investing much more in these... Uh, goods that you can't touch and feel. But you might reasonably say, well, doesn't the nature in of investment change all the time? We used to invest in canals, and then we invested in roads, and then railways, and then aeroplanes, and all that kind of thing. So, you know, doesn't that change all the time? And I think it speaks to what we try and have on the second bit of the slide here. Um, the intangible assets have got rather different properties to some of the more tangible assets, buildings and vehicles and all that. Uh, before them. So just a few here, if I can mention very quickly. So one is spillovers. So one is the idea, this is familiar from the R&D type of literature, if I do some R&D, then Emma could potentially learn about it. If I design a new iPhone, for example, once the iPhone had been designed, all smartphones started to look like an iPhone. So that, 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 that's, that's the first kind of issue. Second, under the heading of scalability over there, is... If I'm, you know, Sainsbury's and I want to, you know, deliver some more... Uh, you know, food to my online clients, then I need to buy a whole load more trucks in order to do so. On the other hand, if I'm Sainsbury's, I've written a piece of software which handles all the billing and all that kind of thing, I only need the one piece of software. So you can scale up these intangible assets to a different extent, to, to a much greater extent. Two more quick things. 
one around sunkenness. So sunkenness refers to the notion that, um, so let's take Monarch Airlines. Monarch Airlines is tangible <coughs> assets of their planes. There's no argument about what's the ownership around their planes. They've uh, gone bust. The planes now go back to the leasing company. Uh, their, in, their main intangible asset turns out to be their landing slots at the various airports. And there's a lot of argument about what the landing slots are. It seems like they might not be able to get that money back. So the sunkenness means, again, quite different characteristics. And then finally, very quickly, around synergies. Once you put all these intangible assets together, you combine the Harry Potter book with the fantastic uh, set design with the amazing software, then you really have amazing movies and plenty of uh, you know, potentially very high profits to be made. So the different characteristics of these intangible assets make this economy look very different to the economies that we've had before. Fantastic. And I think one of the most fascinating parts of, of your argument in the book is that this new economy, this intangible economy, can help explain some of the most serious social and economic challenges that we're facing at the moment, everything from secular, secular stagnation um, to inequality. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What is the connection between mm. the intangible economy and these big social and economic challenges? Thanks. Well, we, there, are, there, are, there are all sorts of connections here, but one thing, one, one example, something that is of great concern in business policy and economic debate at the moment is this widely recorded growing gap between leading businesses and what people, what economists like to call laggard businesses. Um, and the OECD have done some really careful empirical research that shows in country after country and in industry after industry, a small number of businesses are doing really, really well. And a much larger number of businesses seem to be doing really badly. They're underinvesting, they're not productive, they're not profitable. Um, and people have tried to come up with all sorts of explanations for this. They've said, well, maybe competition policy has somehow got a lot worse. Maybe companies are <coughs> giving lots of bribes to regulators and therefore they're allowing them to entrench advantages. Or maybe technologies are for some reason have stopped diffusing out. And the but the intangible argument gives a new perspective on that. Because if intangible assets are becoming more and more important to businesses, so, you know, the Uber algorithm, for example, rather than a fleet of minicabs, we know that those assets have particular properties. They've got spillovers, and they've got synergies, and they've got scalability. Now, if these valuable assets are very scalable, it means there's a big advantage to being a leader company that can grow very large and apply that algorithm or that brand across a large number of sites for a large volume of business. So, you know, to the, to the victor, the spoils there. Similarly, if there are synergies between these things, if, for example, the Uber brand and the Uber algorithm and the Uber network of drivers combine together to be unusually profitable, then again, the person who has those assets, the firm that has those assets, will do really well. Whereas for a competitor firm, if you are kind of Bob's taxis in some local town, um, you can't simply say, well, I'm just going to borrow some money from the bank and build an algorithm, because that is only really valuable if you can co-invest with, with the other things that Uber owns, like the network of drivers and the brand and the installed base. So again, the kind of Matthew principle, to those that have, more will be given. And then finally, kind of something that we've been speculating on, because it sort of seems, seems plausible, is um, that effect might get more and more entrenched over time and might actually encourage underinvestment by the lagging businesses. So if you're in a position where your investments have spillovers, Jonathan gave the example of how Apple invested in designing the iPhone, and within a year, HTC and Samsung produced phones with a very similar design. Um, if you're in that position, and you're a laggard firm, and you're thinking, I would like to invest in some new 
some, some software or some new designs or a new product. Not only might you be discouraged from investing because you don't have the complementary assets that your leading competitors do, but there might even be a, a further dissuasion because these assets have spillovers, you might not get the benefit. The, the, the leading asset, the, 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 the leading uh, company in your category might come along and not only will you not get the benefit, but they will get it instead. And it's interesting, if we look at the kind of, if we look at people who advise businesses on how to compete, we find that there is a whole discipline devoted to this called open innovation. And open innovation, and as, as a kind of former practitioner of it in my old life, we always used to say, was, we always used to pitch as this kind of very nice uh, discipline to do with kind of learning from others and being really collaborative. But of course, another way of looking at it is it's a way of benefiting from investments that other people make, and specifically benefiting from intangibles. So it's a kind of sign that in the real world, businesses are going out and consciously doing this. And if you put all of those things together, you get a world that very closely aligns with what economists talk about when they talk about secular stagnation. A world where investment is lower than you would expect, a world in which productivity growth is lower than you'd expect, but a world in which average corporate profits, which are basically the profits of the investments that are being made by these leading firms, look relatively high and interest rates are low. Um, and you know, if that's true, and obviously it's, it, this, is, this is kind of constructive conceptual speculation, um, then we think this is a kind of a useful answer to, 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 to something that has, is, is really puzzling economists at the moment. So if intangibles can help explain some of the causes of the productivity problem, does it offer us any guide to the solutions? Uh, I, 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 th I think it does, and it goes, it just, we can start off m maybe by going back to something that Stephen was talking about, about the scalability and the gap between the leaders and the laggards. Mm -hmm. So. If the leaders keep going on high productivity and the laggards, you know, stay low by a kind of mere averaging process, mm -hmm. then productivity is going to be more stagnant, yeah. uh, you know, you know, than it would otherwise be. Uh, and a lot of people's interpretation of that, uh, especially set alongside, as Stephen was mentioning, high profitability, mm -hmm. is to say, oh my goodness, something's gone wrong with competition policy. Uh, you've got all these apparently ginormous firms making apparently ginormous profits. Uh, the whole problem, and they're very productive, mm -hmm. so productivity policy and competition policy are all kind of tied up together, and we're not doing a good enough job on competition policy. And we, we th I think, have a rather different interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. It's not that something's gone wrong with competition policy, it's just that these intangible intensive firms can scale up very dramatically in the way that we just described. Uh, and that may lead to some productivity problems, um, but it's not a necessarily a link up between competition problems and I think, I mean, the other, the other angle on this, if these new forms of capital that are kind of the dominant forms of capital in the economy have spillovers, i.e. if it's hard for businesses that make the investment to get the benefit of the investment, then that increases the case for public investment in these areas. So it's a kind of very traditional finding in economics and in public policy that research is a sensible thing for the public sector to fund because particularly blue skies research, it's hard for businesses to get the benefit. So if the government didn't fund any research, you'd have less research done than was kind of socially optimal. So that's why kind of most developed countries, including the UK, spend a fair amount of taxpayers' money on research. Now, if you imagine that investments like research, like investors like intangibles, are becoming more and more important, all other things being equal over time, if you want kind of optimal economic performance, you'd expect to see government making more investment. And certainly if you tie that back to some of the UK's economic priorities at the moment, 
Obviously, in the autumn statement 2016, the government announced a large investment in public <coughs> R&D of £4.7 billion. Um, the Conservative Party manifesto, I'm looking somewhat at Neil O'Brien there, um, announced an aspiration to invest 2.4% of GDP in um, research and development, potentially with some kind of um, public contribution there. Um, so there's certainly this is somewhat in line with some things that we're seeing in, in, in the UK. Where it gets really interesting is whether there are cases for public investment in other intangibles other than R&D. And um, it's very interesting if you look at, we were talking about Uber before as a kind of classic intangibles-based business. If you look at France, if those of you who try to get, a, get an Uber equivalent in France may have used an app called MyTaxi, or I don't know, Litaxi, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's my, my Taxi. And my taxi is basically a public Uber. The French government decided to, I don't know whether I should say rip off, but to, to, to set up a, a clone of Uber that's publicly owned, it's open source, and um, clearly that is one approach to public investment in other non-R&D intangibles. The real question, though, for, for, for public policy wonks is if you decide this is a good idea, how are governments going to do it? Because you know it's no great secret that public investment in developing businesses and things like that has a pretty checkered history and our track record, our governance structures are probably not, not, not currently designed for it. So if we do go down that route, there's probably a ton of good IFG style, um, governance style work that needs to be done as well as making those political economy decisions. And what would some of that governance work look like, Stephen? You know, as you say, if we want to exploit the intangible economy, it does probably imply greater public investment, but how should we go about making the case for that and what kind of governance structures and institutions do we need in place to, to make it happen? It's th that's a really good question. I think if we look at the kind of constitutional landscape in the UK, we can find a lot of things, that perhaps a lot of public institutions that perhaps by historical accident have kind of been sources of intangible assets. So, you know, going back way, way, way back in time, the Ordnance Survey is an institution that was set up back in mm -hmm. the 18th century, I suppose, to produce these kind of knowledge goods that were seen to have this kind of public benefit. Um, in you know the last century, the BBC is clearly a public institution that has that creates a lot of intangibles. There's a lot of debate about what the proper role for the BBC is, but if you look at say the BBC as conceived under John Burt, I mean uh, John Burt's a very unfashionable figure, but you know he was the person who said the BBC should be creating a lot of visionary products in the internet space, and not just R and D, but also sort of you see a lot of the human capital that went on to inform the British. Uh, tech sector kind of got its start in the BBC. The BBC, uh, the micro project is another kind of example of that. So we can sort of see, almost by historical accident, some examples of these things being created. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we've been very mindful about it. Um, and you know, if you believe that there is a scope, that scope to make more of these kind of investments, even if we're just talking about policies that are underway, like the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, I think there'll be a real process of learning of you know, how do you govern those things and how do you make those decisions. One thing, if, if, if I can add, is, again, quite a, quite a high-level comment around mindsets, which is that there's, there's loads and loads of public policy discussion you know, in this building and elsewhere on the general issue of infrastructure mm -hmm. and the government provision of infrastructure. Yeah. And, and often, when I you know, go to seminars, people talk very sensibly about roads and airports and Heathrow and Gatwick and you know, uh, HS2 and all that kind of thing. I mean, that's fine. In an intangible world, it seems to me that we're, there are different ways of thinking about government-provided infrastructure. Mm -hmm. One is obviously around broadband and the internet yeah. and all of that. 
And then the second is, which sort of Stian somewhat touched on, is around science policy and whether we might view you know, science spending, public science spending and public support for science as being a bit like infrastructure, as being providing a whole stream of public goods in the way that you know, well-designed roads and airports and railways uh, would do and all of that. And, and given that there seems to be a lot of political unity around you know, spending on science, um, maybe that might be an area, as I say, you know, when we have infrastructure you know, <laughs> conferences, when we sort of think about infrastructure and we think about policies, maybe putting some intangible complementary infrastructure into those buckets might be a helpful way of mm -hmm. thinking about it. I'm glad you've mentioned infrastructure because I did want to pick up on infrastructure, but probably in relation to the more traditional description of infrastructure around things like um, roads, cities, railways, airports, because it strikes me that the intangible economy that you describe it thrives on, on synergies, as you say, on different ideas being brought together, different sectors being brought together, and different people being brought together in cities and elsewhere. Um, you know, we see it happening already, for instance, in Cambridge. I know there are lots of really exciting examples of defence technology being brought together with medical startups to create really new, exciting products. But making those kinds of connections between people and between ideas does imply a physical join-up, I think, at times, as well as a, a digital join-up. But we know how difficult uh, government finds it to build the infrastructure that it needs to join people up. It's really hard to get new roads built, new airports built, new railways built. So how do we get the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure that we need to unlock this intangible economy? I, I'll just say a word before passing over to Stian, maybe. I, I mean, I think it, it, it's exactly the right way to frame the question, if you see what I mean. That is to say, as I was saying earlier on, infrastructure policy should be seen as part of innovation policy mm -hmm. and in particular policy around planning and around cities cities of course are areas of tremendous synergy where people can get together and do design and and, and get together you know as, as you were mentioning uh, you, you know people who do design in different areas medical people with engineering people and all of that kind of thing to, yeah. to design new things um, so, so cities policy is infrastructure policy but and then then that leads us squarely therefore into the innovation dilemmas around planning, which we talk about in the book. I don't know, just the answer. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, if, we, if you want to say, well, what was the greatest industrial policy triumph of the 1980s in Britain? I mean, industrial policy was not a big thing in the 1980s in Britain, but one good case could be made for Canary Wharf. Mm -hmm. And Canary Wharf is, it turns out, a great example of what you're saying. Canary Wharf was the physical extension of the most intangible rich part in the 1980s of the British economy by building a new well-connected thing in which, into which it could spill over and those synergies could zing off one another and new ideas could emerge. And I think if we're saying, if we believe that cities are the places where these synergies and spillovers happen, and there's certainly good evidence of that, there's some fascinating research done into Silicon Valley that shows that over the last 20 years, Silicon Valley has become not just the hotbed of ICT patenting in the US, but all patents now go on there because patents are so now interrelated. Um, so if that's the case, then there's a strong case to say we want to get as many people living and working in these places mm -hmm. as we can. However, that does bring up a pretty significant paradox because you know, we know in the UK we have difficulties building things um, in, 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 and, and overcoming issues like resistance to development on the Greenbelt. Um, but at the same time, as well as trying to make sure that we develop as much as we can in these areas that have the, 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 the potential to, to, to become hubs of, hubs of intangibles, we also need to make sure that we don't close the venues where the synergies actually happen. And one of the big issues in kind of rows over development in mm -hmm. London 
is the fact that sometimes when we look to build new flats, we look to build them on kind of nightclubs and bars and pubs and things which are otherwise social amenities, which is where the spillovers happen. So I think if we sort of say, well, what does a good, um, what, what, does a, what does a good city look like in this world? On the one hand, it should be relatively easy to develop things, um, so you want to avoid the situation of a city like Oxford, which is kind of, uh, where it's very, very hard to set one brick upon top of the other. But you also probably want to avoid the situation of Houston, which is a city where you can build absolutely anything you want, but the thing sprawls out and there's nowhere to meet and everyone lives anonymously and drives around. And I think striking that balance is kind of a really tough one for, 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 for planners, but it's mm -hmm. absolutely important and it's, 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 it means an infrastructure is industrial pricing. One of the other uh, social challenges that you mentioned that the intangible economy contributes to is, is inequality. And you describe different types of inequality um, that the intangible economy contributes to. Could you talk a little bit about the types of inequality um, you write about in the book? And also, again, you know, not just how does the intangible economy contribute to the problem, but does it, again, offer any guide to, to the solution? So, so why don't I start off as, as an economist by talking about the kind of economic dimension of inequality and then... Steve might want to talk about kind of the esteemed sort of what we call the esteemed side. So the economic dimension of inequality we've touched on a little bit already. Mm -hmm. It's the inequality in, in productivity yeah. and an inequality in profitability between the leader mm -hmm. firms and the laggard firms. I should just, if I can just sort of say, y you might just say, but hold on a moment. If these leader firms have got all this capital, why doesn't that why does that show up as abnormally high profit? Mm -hmm. And part of the reason the reason our book is called Capitalism Without Capital is that um, standard. National accounting and management accounting doesn't account for this intangible capital, so often it's hidden. So it looks like there's tremendous amounts of profit being made on very little mm -hmm. capital. So that's one sort of dimension of, the, of inequality. Mm -hmm. And of course, from the productivity and profitability inequality, mm -hmm. follow wage inequality. If you know better quality workers are hoovered up by those frontier firms, they become very, very you know, precious firms to mm -hmm. work at. Work at. Uh, and those are the kind of firms, again, where the sort of synergies are, be, uh, are taking place as well. So that's on the kind of economic dimension of inequality, which is one of the dimensions that you talk about. Um, and I think, uh, as you both said, there is this, there's this kind of other dimension of inequality which feels very salient at the moment, inequality of esteem, the fact that um, there's, um, you know, increasing feeling in, in, in parts of society that you know, the urban professional classes don't respect other parts of the population, and you can see aspects of that driving the phenomena in the US around the election of Donald Trump and the kind of broader culture wars. And um, we think that there is kind of a, a fairly significant intangible link there too. Um, and one way of thinking about this is to think about some of the political debates that played out immediately after the EU referendum um, in the UK. There, you had quite an interesting debate in the sort of political science community around people, some people sort of saying, um, the, law, the, the high levels of, of voting for Brexit <coughs> was an economic phenomenon. So there were people sort of saying, this is people who felt left behind by some combination of deindustrialization and austerity. Therefore, you know, this is a kind of a, 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 this is an economic result. And there are other people saying, well, this is a cultural result. You know, this is people who live in big, prosperous cities um, voting differently from people who, vote, who, who, who live in uh, who, who live in rural places or older people and so forth. And I think one of the things that comes across from intangibles is that there is an extent to which those two things um, reinforce one another. And it's particularly interesting if you go back to this conception of, well, what are these cities that are full of Remain voters and Hillary Clinton voters and so forth? Well, they're places where people get together to exchange spillovers and synergies. 
And one thing we know from the psychology research is that people who are particularly prone to that tend to score high on, there's a sort of psychological trait called openness to experience. Um, they tend to score low on various forms of social conservatism. They are kind of more prone to be hipsters or symbolic analysts or all these people who, uh, who, 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 who we like to laugh at. And that those characteristics are in a sense selected for more in an intangible economy than they, than, than, than they have been in the past. So you've got a situation, and the other interesting thing from people like Eric Kaufman, the, the Birkbeck political scientist, is that these characteristics are also very strongly uh, selected for in the distinction between people who voted for Clinton or for Trump or for Remain or for Leave. So you have a situation where some of these characteristics of social conservatism are being almost deselected for in this new economy. They're kind of, they're, they, 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 are, they are the source of, of, of people being left behind economically but they're also associated with these kind of cultural rifts that underlie the tension over the referendum result or the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the US election result last year. So our argument would be that, well, this is a really interesting example of something where, because of the nature of intangibles and the nature of these spillovers between them, the cultural and the economic side are reinforcing one another. Thanks, Dean. That's really interesting. And you, and you mentioned Brexit, and I wanted to pick up on this, because, again, you know, if you have an intangible economy that's thriving on, on these synergies, on people working together, um, joining up different ideas, and being able to operate in a policy context that actually makes that openness um, and those connections possible. Doesn't Brexit throw a bit of a spanner in the works? Well, well we, we, so we try to be mixed on this, you know, uh, try to see the good in all sides, uh, somehow or other. So, so let me tell you the, the bad bit of Brexit, it's precisely as your question indicates. You know, if I've got an intangible asset, a design, a piece of software, mm -hmm. the thing I really want to do is I want to scale it up as much as yep. I possibly can. There's no point in serving a tiny market, I want to serve a really big market. Mm -hmm. So if we were in a situation, hypothetically, where an economy were to cut itself off from a very large market, I can't think of a particular example, <laughs> but maybe other people in the room can, that would seem to be like a rather bad mm -hmm. thing. Um, but there may be some other institutional issues. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the flip side is, in an economy where intangibles really important, the kind of rules around those, uh, around those intangibles also become more important and a potential source of economic advantage. So to give an example, data and the use of data and privacy, it really matters if you believe that data is a, an investment that a firm should be making and that it can profit from. It matters that you have good institutions so that customers trust companies with their data and that companies can use data together in responsible ways that don't lead to backlashes. Now the implication of that, and you see that played out across the whole intangible economy, is that having good regulation and effective regulation really matters, which means there is an opportunity to, if you believe that, for example, through Brexit, the UK can get a better regulatory system, that we can mm -hmm. kind of, we can, we can develop better systems than, um, than, than the rest of Europe, a kind of Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings view, then you'd argue that Brexit kind of is, 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 a, is a sensible response to the intangible economy. Mm -hmm. so, so, as Jonathan said, there's sort of swings and roundabouts here, depending on what you think is, is feasible. Great, thank you. And then just one final question, and then I'm going to open up to the audience, because I'm sure you will have lots of questions for Jonathan and Stian too. And we're in the Institute for Government. Uh, we do a lot of work on effective policy making. What does this mean for policymakers, and perhaps particularly the Treasury? What should they be doing differently on the basis of the intangible economy? And Jonathan, I wonder if there's something particular there on measurement and how um, government gets better at measuring um, intangible assets. Um, so as I mentioned earlier on, again, the motivation of the title of, of the book is a lot of mm -hmm. this is not measured. So yeah. it could be that the economy is, is, is performing a little differently to, to mm. how we thought. 
and we discuss that a little bit in the book. Um, I'd say two big things would really go back over the kind of ground that we've, we've, mm -hmm. thought, that we've thought about. Um, science policy, again, is, you know, for the for people sitting in the Treasury, um, regarded somewhat sort of Cinderella around, uh, sometimes around infrastructure policy. Mm -hmm. No, 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 that's front and centre for infrastructure policy. So if we're going to have infrastructure policy around housing and, you know, airports and all that kind of thing, science policy is part mm -hmm. of that. Um, and then the second thing is we've mentioned this very tricky issue around planning. Mm -hmm. And again, planning is not just some small detail to be dealt with by some other ministry. Mm. It's now <coughs> a central plank in this intangible world of innovation policy. Stan, do you want to answer anything? Well, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't be making recommendations to the Treasury as a, as a, as a government <laughs> employee, but I think, you know, I could point to some things the Treasury have done recently and sort of that are very consistent with, with the intangible economy and things like um, the significant investment in R&D, um, the kind of aspiration to invest in skills and training and education. I think all of those things are kind of exactly the sort of things that you'd want to be doing in this kind of, in this kind of new economy. So, well done, Treasury. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to turn to the audience now. I'll take questions in threes, I think. As predicted, we'll have a lot to start here. Just got a microphone coming. If you could say uh, who you are and, and where you're from. Thank you very much. Tara Alice from McKinsey Global Institute. Um, thank you for a fascinating presentation. I look forward to reading the book. There's an enormous amount there. I had one sort of geeky question and another one which is more around policy. And the geeky question is really, if more and more people are investing in more and more intangibles, and maybe not even that geeky. You know, I thought that was associated with kind of things like innovation. And yet, if we look at innovation performance in the economy through things like total factor productivity or whatever, we're not doing so great. So, interested in how you kind of explain that discrepancy. Um, and then the policy related question is you talk about science as part of the critical infrastructure for an intangible based economy. What about skills? because it is my impression that science without the skills to absorb it and apply it and actually mm -hmm. put it into action in businesses is not necessarily very valuable to the economy. Thank you. Hi, uh, Martin Turner from the Bioindustry Association. You both talked about um, that the government should invest in R&D because it's hard for companies to capture the value of it. Mariana Mazakuto and others argue that the government should be seeking to get a return on that investment. Um, how do you think the government should be getting that return? Perhaps through patenting or, or taxes further downstream? I'd really like your views. Okay, and then finally just can I, can I ask about the productivity gap? It, this issue of the lagging companies, is, a, as I understand it from the analysts, is a particularly poor issue, in the, important issue in the UK. Mm. How does you, could you just explain why the UK is uniquely bad in the productivity gap compared to Germany, which is currently booming. Is there, is there something they're doing better on the intangibles? Uh, or what, what is there a reason you can look at this as case studies? My second question is looking ahead, there are a whole series of, tra of transformative technologies ahead and we're only at the beginning of something extraordinary. What are the lessons from your book for people, that, for policymakers as they think about a future with AI, quantum computing and all the other uh, technologies that are beginning to, beginning to kick off? Okay, thank you. So we've got a couple of questions on why isn't the UK doing better. Um, skills, policy, 
um, government return on investment, uh, and then finally uh, lessons from policymakers on AI, quantum computing. So why don't I take a couple of the start and then, and then turn over for the Mariana question. And, and, and we said earlier on that we would try to be very brief to try to get more questions. So if I give you a brief answer, that's not, not because I dislike the question, it's just to try and uh, push stuff in. So uh, thank you, Tara, for your questions. Um, you're right, we are investing more in intangibles, but of course the one of the interesting things about the Great Recession is that our tangible investment fell very sharply. That's been well documented. But actually, our intangible investment fell as well. Mm -hmm. So although there's been a secular trend towards more intangible investment, that fell after the Great Recession. So the pace of spillovers that that would be throwing off may get lower. And that, that, that is correlated with our declining uh, TFP performance as well. Um, I, I absolutely agree about skills being part of infrastructure as well. Skills are, you know, knowing, guessing the kind of skills we need in the future is rather harder to do. So we've got some suggestions around flexibility about our education and all that kind of thing. Um, just very quickly, I didn't get your name. I'm so sorry. sorry. So Chris, thank you again for your question. Uh, one thing that Britain relative to Germany is we actually invest much more in intangibles relative to Germany. So we may have a bigger productivity spread if our more intangible intensive firms are able to scale up more. Now, the geeky part of me says we haven't quite got the data to figure that out yet to match it all up, but there may be, a little, uh, there may be an element of that. In terms of your lessons, and finally, finally, in terms of your lessons about going, going ahead, uh, my view would be that we don't want to take any specific bet on a very specific technology. So we need, need to try to be as embracing as we possibly can and devise policy to be as general as it possibly can. But, Steve, do you want um, to talk about Mariana? Yeah, well, first of all, I just might quickly build on that answer mm -hmm. about new technologies and how we respond to them. There was a terrific working paper that Eric Brynjolfsson put out a couple of days ago answering specifically this question in the context of intangibles, which I think is very helpful. And he, his, he was looking at the question of, well, given there are all these amazing technologies, why is productivity doing so badly? And he answered it in what I thought was a very historically astute way, where he basically said, new technologies take a really long time to actually be useful. And Paul David did obviously very famous work about how they invented electrification, but it took decades for factories to electrify. And his argument was that you need lots of complementary investments, mm. which are intangible investments, yeah. like design, like organisation structures, to make these things useful. And so I would be saying, well, we need to find ways of getting those kind of investments in place. And the kind of things that government could potentially be doing there is facilitating risk capital, investment in research, but not just scientific research, but potentially humanities research, management research, and so forth. Um, and also, uh, to Terra's point, the kind of skills behind um, Martin, on the question of um, how should government capture its share of the return from the kind of the, the, the money that it puts forward, um, some of you may know I've kind of argued a lot with Mariana Mazzucato about this in the past. Um, I think this is just a very pragmatic question in public administration about what you think works. I think the argument that government should basically be taking golden shares in companies on the basis of government support is, pr in, my opinion, in my opinion, pretty hard or impossible to implement partly because government supports businesses in so many different ways. So, you know, it's one thing to sort of say a small biotech firm, for example, its entire business might be based on a molecule funded on, on from, from public research. And there you might look at it and say, well, surely the government should own a golden share or some non-diluting equity or so forth. But equally, public investment in intangibles could include, for example, the way that the public sector in the UK supports Rolls-Royce PLC which you know, is many small interventions, some of which contribute very economically significant IP, but some of which are much more minor. And the argument is that in any case, there should be a golden share. If so, how do you value it? 
do you have a bunch of civil servants managing those states? I find that quite problematic. And I find it particularly problematic given that the government already has a fantastic and time-honoured mechanism for having a golden share of the profits of business called tax. And, you know, tax has been around for thousands of years. We've had a lot of time to get good at it. Um, you know, there is obviously tax avoidance and tax evasion, but we also know that you can fix that in fairly, in, in fairly straightforward ways. So my view would always be, don't invent a new structure of golden shares. Um, I, would, I would stick with stick with simple stuff, stick with exploiting our share through tax. And if you really want to improve that, then <coughs> invest more in tackling tax avoidance. Thank you. More questions? Yeah, stay here. Um, so yeah, I thought there were some really great insights there. Um, thanks very much for that. I'm doing some work with the Federation of Small Businesses at the moment on um, digital technologies and exporting. And I wondered what you thought the implications for the intangible economy are on international trade. Because it seems people get very obsessed by goods and they might think about services, but the servitization of goods and the interaction between goods and services and how that would all work for the future. I just wondered, had you, had you thought about the policy implications of that maybe? Ken Warry, Regulatory Policy Committee. And we've always had pretty good data for a long time on, on R&D, and there's been a lot of work on that, and that's been quite influential in shaping government policy. And now you've got better data on other intangibles. Are we yet at a stage where we're finding similar uh, findings uh, in terms of externalities, spillovers, etc., as for R&D? And then Heaton... Thanks. Uh, Hitan Shah, Royal Statistical Society. Uh, the obvious question, what does this all mean for statisticians? Uh, <laughs> so what should they be measuring? Uh, and in particular, I suppose this question, which you've started alluding to, but has the UK economy doing, been doing better than we thought and we've just not captured it? Okay, thank you. So we've got implications for trade, um, data in R&D, and what does this mean for statisticians? Oh, ben, do you want to start? Why, why, why don't I go in reverse? So I, I should declare an interest, which is that I have the honour to be on the board of the UK Stats Authority. So um, I, I, I say that my interest is declared. In fact, we're having a meeting right now, which I'm not at, I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, and I'm here instead, so I'm going to bike over there straight away afterwards. So uh, again, Heaton, thanks, thanks for the question. Uh, I, I think there's a fairly clear roadmap about what statisticians should do, which is essentially to try to measure this hidden capital. And I have to say, and, and now I'm going to market the uh, you know, national income accounting profession here, which is often, you know, not people don't stick up for them enough. They've actually been quite innovative in their own way, in the sense that business accountants have looked at this issue about accounting for intangibles and basically made no progress whatsoever for decades and decades and decades. Whereas at least national accountants have slowly started to bring in software, bring in R&D, bring in investment in artistic originals and all of that. So everything is moving in the right direction, but it needs resources and so forth um, to, to do it in that way. So again, this is these aren't the ideas of you know some wild you know academics and Steen and I sort of thought up on a Sunday afternoon. This is slowly being uh, you know implemented by statistical agencies. I'll, t I'll take Ken's question very very quickly uh, on the issue of spillovers. I think we've got some evidence coming up that indeed there are spillovers from this broader basket of intangibles as well. So as I mentioned, Ken, you know, uh, well, as you mentioned, there's quite a lot of very uh, persuasive evidence that if I do some R&D, you know, Emma can learn from my R&D. But as I mentioned earlier on, if I design a new iPhone, it looks like everybody else learned from the design of the iPhone as well. The only thing I would say is, it goes back to the synergies issue, is if we think that actually this stuff is all very bundled together, 
then the spillover tissue is quite difficult because it's not just the R&D which Emma learns from, it's the whole sort of bundle of intangible assets together. Maybe Emma finds that too difficult to learn from, so maybe those spillovers are more difficult, so maybe it might vary by the amount of bundle and so forth. So there's pl plenty of interesting um, stuff to be done there. Um, I think, I mean, the only uh, remaining question was this question about, well, could this mismeasurement account for why the economy yes. is not doing Sorry. as well as we'd like it to be? And we have actually answered that question in the book, unfortunately, it doesn't solve all our problems. There are, if you include, say, intangible investments in the kind of perceived investment gap, it closes a bit of the gap, but we still have, we, we, we still have an investment problem. So, um, so uh, sadly, we have not fixed that important problem of the UK economy. Okay, more questions. I should say for people in the room next door, uh, if you want to ask a question, we have the highly technological solution of sticking your head round the door. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> please let us know. Okay. Um, um, two data questions. Um, we were just on the subject of the UK's very low uh, level of investment in <coughs> fixed capital. Uh, to what extent do you regard that as being explained away by low manufacturing share and high intangibles investment? And to what extent do you think there is a real problem and what are the causes of it? And my second question was on this point about leaders and laggards. Um, to what extent do you regard that as a, a robust finding? I can see that clearly productivity, if you pick a point in time, fans out between different firms. But is that a new thing, or would that be the same if we picked our point in time as being in the 1960s or the 1950s? David Howell from the House of Lords. Um, fascinating themes. Um, I'm sure uh, you were aware of, or how aware were you, of the vast body of analysis going really back 40 or 50 years to softnomics and the rise of the soft economy. The Japanese had a huge input to this kind of thinking in the second half, third, second half of the last century, and I wondered how much you've been able to draw on all that. I know it created a great deal of discussion and not many conclusions in the last 20 years, the last century. But my, my real question is this. I've had a horribly cursory look at your excellent book. Uh, I couldn't see anything in it about the spreading of economic and investment power and all the ideas for promoting wider ownership of new wealth, not existing wealth, but new wealth, to, uh, um, as it were, to a, a more democratic base to meet the um, inequality of status and inequality of esteem you talk about and all the other inequalities which are obviously being turbo-boosted by the digitalization of the, capital of the capitalist economy. It seems to me that's a pretty important part of the story and I just wonder why I couldn't see anything in it. You, I'm sure I've probably missed it. Thank you. Uh, John Kirkpatrick, Competition and Markets Authority. Um, I heard earlier the, a, a further kind of ringing endorsement of the case for government investment in, in R&D. But I think I also heard, particularly from Jonathan, a story that says it is actually, in some respects, easier for some firms to capture the benefits of, uh, of intangible research, particularly when you combine it with data, particularly when you, uh, you're dealing with network effects and so forth as well. Now, in that situation, of course, you do get this growth of economic inequality, and I wonder, having let competition policy off the hook uh, quite early on in what, you, in what you were saying, whether there are nonetheless lessons for, for that part of the policy forest um, in what you found. Okay, thank you. So, leaders and laggards, is this a new problem? Um, how do we spread um, new wealth and competition policy? What does it need to do? Sh shall I start quickly with, I think, Neil's question on the leaders and laggards? Um, we don't have the data to look over previous decades, but it does look like this is somewhat of a 2000s problem, actually.
actually, the gap between leaders and laggards. There's always been churn, you know, up and down the productivity distribution, but it does look like this is the first time there's been a sustained a gap between the leaders and laggards. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, then the other issue about, you know, fixed capital and our low fixed capital investment. Um, so here I think an intangible perspective is rather useful. You're absolutely right, because we've got less manufacturing, we have got lower um, fixed capital, uh, we, uh, lower tangible capital investment. But two <coughs> things. Firstly, Britain does a lot more intangible capital investment. It's amongst one of the leaders, actually, relative to many other nations. Secondly, the gap between manufacturing and services, or the margin, I should say, between manufacturing and services, is changing enormously. So there's one thing, if I may say, and we do talk a little bit about in the book. Um, if you take someone like Rolls-Royce, Stephen mentioned Rolls-Royce earlier on, they come to Imperial College, where, where I teach quite a lot. If you ask them about their investment, they, of course they talk about all the tangible machines and the fantastic you know, machines that they've got for making all these alloys and all that kind of thing, but increasingly they talk about the R&D, they talk about the design, they talk about the marketing and all of that. So I think one of the takeaways is that <coughs> margin, as I say, between the tangibles and into, uh, between manufacturing uh, uh, and services has become a lot less. Um, and then from David and, and John, sort of two terrific questions. Let, let me kind of say something kind of quite broad and then maybe that's a segue <coughs> into Stian is you might say, if we live in this world with all these spillovers, as I say, I do some R&D, Emma can learn from it, you might say, isn't that a force for equality, <coughs> per your question? Isn't the world going to get just much more equal for that reason? Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, we know the world's it's been going the other way around. <coughs> but of course, the other thing that's going on is the synergies and the ability of people to reap the returns from these things, you know, by betting, getting together and employing more complementary factors. So that seems to be a force for... Push, pushing people apart. <coughs> so I think the part of the difference is, is it's kind of a battle between those two, between those two factors. Makes sense. Um, I wanted to pick up, David, on your point about softnomics and Japan. Mm -hmm. And since you raised it, I will let you and the audience into an exclusive secret on the book, only available to IFG attendees at this event, which is that um, a lot of these findings, a lot of these observations about the intangible economy, although they've kind of been relatively recent developments, in economics have been something that sociologists, um, as some of you will know, have been talking about for, 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 for quite some decades now. And um, while we were writing the book, we spent quite a lot of time delving into the sort of 1980s and 1990s um, sort of sociologists of the new economy and things like the rise of the network society and people who, often with reference to Japan and some of the sort of Kaizen production methods, have been sort of thinking, not in a very economic way, but in more of a sociological way, saying something is going on in the economy. And one of the things that I think was, was so enjoyable about writing the book was being able to bring together some of those perspectives. And, you know, I used to work for Jeff Mulgan, who was writing about this stuff in the early 90s as well, um, and seeing how they'd actually played out um, in the economy. And it's fascinating, some of these early 90s books that were talking, you know, they, these authors were only kind of dimly aware of the internet, which in those days was kind of not scarcely a thing in any case. But they were kind of writing about the economy as it was fulfilled in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's very relevant to what we were talking about. Um, on John, on your point about competition, um, if I were looking at um, potentially high return public investments I could make in the intangible economy, obviously we talked about R&D. R&D is often pretty expensive and you know, big science and uh, batteries institutes and things like that, and they often do very good investments, they do cost a lot of money. I wonder whether there might be some value buys for the public sector, as it were, in the world of regulation. Because regulators, compared to big science projects, are quite cheap. 
And as we've said, if things like getting regulation on data or GM foods or whatever and buying social consent for those things are important to unlocking investment, you might be able to do that with millions where other projects might cost tens or hundreds of millions. So I'll make a very unfashionable uh, plea for spending more money on bureaucrats and pencil pushers and uh, for, the, for the benefit of the economy. That's welcome in this room, so. <laughs> Bruce Lloyd um, from the London South Bank University. A, a question on R&D expenditure. First of all, there does seem to be an argument that you're putting forward that we want more investment in it so that, in essence, we're arguing for more capital. Yeah? And the question that arises in the allocation of resources to R&D is, of course, how do you decide what's the right level and then when you have your R&D budgets, how do you determine your priorities? And many people would argue, and I know it's a very controversial thing, but things like the massive investment in the so-called tangible of HS2 was done on very spurious mm -hmm. justifications. And when you have public investment in R&D, you really need to be much more transparent and open and rigorous about the criteria that you're using. Hi, uh, Will Lord from the Cities and Local Growth Unit. Um, I was really interested by the point that uh, Steve was making about how government gets into the game of intangible investments, but beyond the kind of usual suspects of R&D. So, I guess my question is, are there any areas of intangible investment that government doesn't focus on, which it could be thinking of getting involved in? Uh, two things that come to mind. One are uh, firm organization. We have the work of the Productivity Council mm. at the moment, and uh, Andy Haldane's coming up with a lot of stuff around uh, diffusion of technology. And the other one is potentially branding and marketing. Is there a case for saying that government uh, trade promotion or branding and marketing for certain sectors or clusters mm. should be sort of packaged within this intangibles? Thanks, Caroline Reed from the International Group at the Treasury. And um, I had two related questions. The first, are, first is, are intangible assets more borderless than other forms of assets, um, both in terms of sc scalability and <coughs> spillovers? And then my second question related to that is, if the answer to that is yes, um, what are the kind of global solutions that we need to apply to this? Because a lot of what we've talked about so far is just domestic policy solutions. Great, thank you. So I think, you know, one question on how to decide the right level and priorities in R&D. Um, are there any intangible uh, areas that government should be getting in on? Um, you know, is this kind of borderless? And if so, what are, what are the global solutions we should be looking at? So, so again, thanks, thanks for those questions. So I think Bruce asked the question about R&D and HS2 and all of that. Again, I think that's an illustration, if I may say, of how when we think about infrastructure policy, we immediately reach for very traditional infrastructure, you know, HS2 and roads and, you know, all, all that kind of thing. Uh, we've got a whole range of government policy on R&D, R&D tax credits, you know, public support for universities, which <coughs> might then cascade to private R&D and all those kinds of things. And working out where the best pound is on all those different margins uh, is, a, is a very difficult thing to do, but yeah, I think that's something which actively, you know, pe people are trying to do alongside considering HS2 and all that kind of thing as well. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave Steen to talk to Will's question, but briefly on <coughs> Carolyn's question, um, 
Are intangibles more borderless? Uh, yes, I think we've got a fair amount of evidence that they are. Um, now there's some tax plays going on uh, to, to some extent here, so we've sort of seen all of that. But also, you know, companies are very assiduous about moving mobile capital back and forth between different countries. And so if we think about the R&D tax credit, for example, we were talking about earlier on, is you might ask the question, if Britain gives an R&D tax credit, does that, you know, help British uh, R&D, which we think the answer is yes. On the other hand, if Denmark, Holland, gives an offsetting R&D ta tax credit, namely, you know, an even more aggressive R&D tax credit, does the British R&D, you know, move off to Holland or is it relatively sticky? And the nightmare scenario there, of course, is where the kind of, the Dutch, the responsiveness to Holland is exactly the same as the responsiveness to Britain, in which case it's just being all shuff shuffled around. And I think we've got some evidence to say that that nightmare scenario is indeed the case, which is that this R&D at the margin is very, very sensitive to, you know, international uh, uh, international prices. So that makes the design of these things in international context, as you say, uh, very difficult, and we're just going to have to compete, you know, on taxes or offset that by having a more preferential infrastructure uh, in the ways that you've <coughs> described to try to attract R&D. Um, I maybe pick briefly up on Will's question about what are some other opportunities for the public sector to invest in intangibles and um, I mean obviously things like firm organisation, branding, marketing, um, governments do do some of this already, there are lots of valuable brands that governments own um, and we talked earlier about the My Taxi scheme in France which effectively is about organising a network. Um, I think there are probably some other kind of mainstream examples of this in the UK as well, if you look at um, when people talk about industrial policy in the UK, one thing that always gets a good write-up is our aerospace policy. And arguably, what the big thing that government does in aerospace, basically in aerospace there are four supply chains. There's two big engine supply chains and two big uh, airframe uh, <coughs> supply chains. And a lot of UK aerospace policy is basically about getting our suppliers aligned in those supply chains and getting good interactions between them. So, for example, the Aerospace Technology Initiative involves a lot of investment in suppliers by the primes and so forth. And, you know, that's something that the UK government, working with businesses, spent quite a lot of time over the last decade getting to work. So although it looks a lot different from the kind of physical infrastructure of, 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 of HS2 or road building or whatever, it is probably an example of, 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 of government doing that. So I think those would be the kind of things I'd look to if you were to say, well, how do you do more in that area? Thank you. Right, I think we've got time for one more round of questions. Uh, so over here. Hi, I'm Amy Weir from the Campaign for Science and Engineering. I just want to pick up again on the skills piece, because obviously a lot of what we've discussed requires people to do these things and, and know about how doing them. Um, I wonder whether you could just um, expand a bit on some of the suggestions from the thinking um, that you'd make on skills. <coughs> okay, and there's Paul. Uh, Paul Wallace, I'm a journalist. Um, I wonder whether you could cast more light on the productivity stagnation in Britain since the recession. I mean, it's been worse, it's, it's, it's been a common phenomenon, the slowdown, but it's been particularly severe in Britain. And it seems odd, as you say, given the fact that when you do the comparisons with Germany, the intangible investment seems high. Mm. And that's including things like organisational capital, which I understand to be managerial expertise. And so, you know, that seems to sort of contrast particularly with the fact that we don't generally think about companies as being better managed than German ones. And there's just a second question, if I may, which is that it seems to me that the effect of the sort of policies that you're espousing for 
um, promoting productivity improvement for, for, for taking account of this sort of new way of thinking about the economy are ones which, put bluntly, would benefit London and wouldn't benefit the North. And I wonder how you would deal with that. Because, as you say, there is a problem about the populist. You, you're, you're seeking to explain the populist reaction to some of the things that have been going on. Thank you. And then right at the back. Uh, Martin Brassel. <coughs> um, you mentioned accounting a couple of times. Um, Having not had the opportunity to read through the book yet, I'd be very interested in whether you conclude that the invisibility of these investments on the balance sheets from an accounting perspective, uh, recognising obviously that it's a very tricky pro a problem to, to try and solve, whether that's actually a blockage or an obstacle, and if so, on what? For example, conversations around funding, which you also alluded to on your slide. Thanks, and then as it's the final round, I'll just take the question that was... Hi, Yostan Herge, University of Cambridge. Um, so in the UK, we've seen sort of manufacturing being on the decline and services uh, increasing, similar to sort of intangible, intangible uh, things. Some people would argue that part of the manufacturing decline and services increase is because some things that were counted as manufacturing were in manufacturing firms, R&D design and even catering and security guards, are now being done separately. So we're not seeing that much of a difference in actual activities. We're just counting things different, at least in part. My other question was about where do you see the importance of the tangible economy, if you will? Um, uh, do we want to move towards all these intangible investments? To what extent? Um, the fact that Germany, for example, has, I guess, more tangible investments than the UK helps them in part with a with the trade balance, we talked a bit about trade. Um, if you can elaborate on that, thank you. Thank you, okay, so we've got skills, the slowdown again. Is the economy described to London-centric? Um, blockage or obstacles? Are we just counting things differently? And then a good question to end on, do we actually want an intangible economy? Shall I kick off with a few of those things? Um, Paul, both of your questions were things that sort of greatly troubled me, so I'm kind of glad you asked. Um, the, I think there's a really interesting empirical question on the management skills, because we do have this finding that the UK invests more than Germany on this organisational development point, but, you know, as you rightly remark, um, there is a perception that German companies are better managed, and that's empirically borne out by the kind of Bloom and Van Rien work on management matters. So I think there's kind of an interesting thing to work out about about how we measure this, and this comes back to the question of, um, I think, you know, this is an area where we would love to see better, better data gathered. I mean, the, the, the this doesn't affect the broad trends, but I think you know that's a really good example of the kind of thing where 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 we need to work out what's going on. On the London versus the North question, I think that's incredibly important from a political economy point of view. And it's certainly true that these kind of agglomeration effects that benefit big cities like London um, are will become more of a thing as the economy gets more intangible. On this, I mean, I've always been very influenced by the work of uh, Tom Forth, who some of you may know, who's a kind of blogger and computer scientist. Um, his argument is that actually the big problem that we have is we've not allowed northern cities in the UK to achieve the agglomeration economies that their size would suggest. And his argument, I've, I'm not an expert on this, is that that's because of underinvestment in transport, 
because of um, jam spreading at public investments and so forth, and not concentrating things. And um, you know, I, I think those are really we absolutely have to get that right. His his argument to me is somewhat optimistic because it suggests that we can make an intangible economy real in a way that benefits other cities other than London. Um, the one other thing I wanted to pick up on was Martin's question about are, is the invisibility of these assets on the firm's balance sheet a problem, for particularly from a finance point of view? We haven't gone into finance much today, although there's a big chapter in the book on it, and basically we conclude it is a problem. Um, and one of the really interesting findings that, that, that accounting scholars have seen is basically that the company accounts have become less and less descriptive of the actual observed value of firms over the last eight years, and that is pretty much because of intangibles, because these things that you can't measure, and where the book value isn't a good guide, become more and more important. There's some really interesting work by financial scholars like Alex Edmonds, looking at how a lot of these investments that firms make into intangibles aren't adequately valued by public markets. So better accounting and better measurement is definitely a way to go, and I know, Martin, you were one of the people leading the charge on that, so kudos for you. Um, I, I want to echo also, Martin's been doing some fantastic work on this kind of area as well. I mean, what essentially you know, Martin's doing, but I hope we reflect and credit him adequately in the book, is that, of course, if this were all better accounted for, then it could all start to be traded, so people could start trading in software and trading in these intangible assets, and that is indeed starting to happen as well. Um, let me mention quickly about skills. Uh, we, we didn't want to be too prescriptive about skills because it's very difficult, it seemed to us, to kind of forecast what you know future skill requirements might be beyond probably more non-cognitive skills than cognitive skills. So instead, what we talked about much more is a lot more flexibility, especially around adult education, uh, on the basis that you know if new technologies are going to come along, they're going to need new sets of skills and all of that. There's a kind of a Cinderella area of the education uh, a kind of policy area. Um, and so we, we, we tried to sort of talk a, talk a lot about that. Uh, about that. Um, uh, just Art was asking about the boundaries between manufacturing and services uh, and, and all of that. Uh, there's been lots of studies about that by the ONS, where you essentially re-engineer the definitions of manufacturing and servi services, and it doesn't turn out to be a very big effect, apparently. Uh, apparently, That is to say, the movement away from manufacturing towards services, because, of course, many service sector companies who are so classified do manufacturing activities as well, actually. And by a peculiarity of the classification system, they tend to be over-classified into services. So... That, that doesn't turn out to be the case. But I think, Emma, you were keen for us to end on this point about whether we really want a more intangible That's economy. Um, so so I, think, um, I think we probably do. I think it's kind of uh, inevitable. But I think what our book is trying to point out is that, um, as, as I was saying, as I was trying to say before, there are a lot of features which come you know, with that growing intangibility. So again, to go back to Paul's question, if it's the case that there are these spillovers, you'd think it would spread out everywhere. On the other hand, if there are the synergies, then places like London and places like that are going to be the places which are going to benefit from it. So as we make the transition to a more intangible-based economy, I think what the book is trying to point out is we have to be aware of the consequences for inequality and for uh, changing productivity as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you all for excellent questions and thanks to yep. Steen and Jonathan for a fantastic discussion and a brilliant book. Thank you.